Today on Profiles, Owen Johnson sits down with two contemporary Polish leaders. In the second half of the program, Polish ambassador to the U.S. Richard Schnepf will join us for conversation. First, we'll hear Polish historian Łukasz Kaminski. He is the president of the Institute of National Remembrance and one of the original signers of the Prague Declaration on European Conscience and Communism. Kaminski spoke with Owen Johnson on September 10th. Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Łukasz Kaminski, president of the National Institute of Remembrance in Poland. Dr. Kaminski, welcome to Profiles. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. You were born in 1973 seven years before the opposition trade union movement Solidarity began, and 16 years before the roundtable agreement that signaled the end of communist rule in Poland. How did you first come into contact as a young person with this communist world? How did you recognize that this, how the system worked? Uh, First thing I, I remember, of course, was connected with the a uh, cemetery in Kazimierz Dolny. It's a small town in in central um, central uh, Poland, and on this cemetery, some uh, grandparents of my father um, have um, laying. So, uh, when I was six or seven, uh, I remember from from this cemetery uh, special graves. There were graves. Uh, of uh, soldiers of Armia Krajowa, Home Army, our resistance movement during the Second World War. And um, what was strange in, uh, on these graves uh, were the dates of death. I remember, saw the date like 1946 or 1947, and there was written that uh, they died in tragic way. So it was uh, impossible for me to understand why. One year, two years after after the war, and uh, I felt there is something uh, something strange in this situation. And of course, many years after this first experience, I realized why uh, the soldiers of Polish underground were killed uh, after the war by 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 the communists. And of course, uh, living in Wrocław, in, especially in the late eighties, when I was in, in high school. Uh, I was, um, uh, we can say, the witness of, of mass demonstrations, strikes, etc. Et so so uh, it was possible in such uh, big cities like Wrocław is, uh, for example, to read um, underground uh, newspapers and to learn something about the reality. So, so of course, uh, the situation uh, of people living in countryside was not so not so easy. Many of them learned, that, for example, about the history. Uh, after 1989, but uh, living in the big city, it was much easier to uh, to understand uh, the communist reality. Some of our listeners may recognize the the German name Breslau of of Wrocław. Do you think um, living in what had been, at least for a while, a German part, made it easier for people to talk about these things in the 1980s? Um, Wrocław, uh, because of this origin, was was a very uh, interesting and inspiring place to live in because uh, there was a kind of mixture because almost all Germans were expelled after the Second World War from Wrocław. And in this place, they, there come people from all parts of Poland and even uh, immigrants from abroad. So it was something, something new in Poland, uh, 
strange mixture. But in 1980s, it was a very, very specific place uh, with a very, very good society. So it's... Um, Something new. So, so sometimes I compare it to the Wild West in the United States, and uh, it was a, a place for for people who were brave and who wanted to start a new life. For example, in the forties, a lot of people who were engaged in opposition against communists uh, tried to find a new place to live uh, uh, to, to, uh, without any repression, and some of them choose Wrocław. So it's it's a very good history now. We are trying to to combine this Polish history after 1945 with the German history. It's not only German history; it's uh, uh, Austrian history, Czech history, and again Polish history in medieval ages. So it's a nice place to live and uh, uh, inspiring history. When you were growing up, were you able to talk to your parents about the earlier history, what had happened? Was there communication between generations? No. Uh, it was, uh, I think, in majority of Polish families, not only in the 80s, also in earlier decades, uh, that uh, some topics were forbidden even even in families. Uh, especially parents uh, told that it's a danger for, for children to speak openly, for example, about the history, about the history of Polish-Bolshevik war in 1920 of cutting crime and uh, other uh, events of this uh, of this kind, and so I don't remember any uh, any talks with my parents on, on such dangerous topics. Of course, I remember, for example, as a, I was a child when uh, the martial law was introduced, and and I remember my, my mother crying, for example. Uh, but only thing she said to me is that. Uh, was happened something very very bad so it was on this level what are your memories of the end of communism oh it's, it's a memory of of young student and everything was interesting uh, the world started to change on our eyes and it was a huge change change in just a few few a uh, few months uh, so i remember a lot of mass demonstrations uh, some uh, from 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 the period of uh, partly free elections in 1989, I remember that we tried to organize something in our school to to, to for example to co- collect money to for support uh, for for the uh, solidarity. So such things, and I think the most important um, personal memory from this time for me it's a uh, uh, festival of independent Czech Slovak culture. Uh, it was in Wrocław in uh, beginning of November, so just uh, two weeks um, before uh, the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. And uh, Václav Havel wrote a few times that it was a kind of preludium for, for this revolution. A few thousand of young, especially Czechs, uh, my majority of them were Czechs, came to Wrocław to meet, for example, people from, from exile, like Karekry and, and others, uh, to see independent uh, art, etc. Et and it was something which is impossible to, to, to forget for, for me. And I think my interest in Czechoslovak history started then, in November 1989. How is it that you decided to study history in the university when you hadn't been able to talk about it with your parents? Um, as I said, uh, I saw the history on the streets, uh, I, I could say, um, this way. And in my school, I started to organize some exhibitions about the, the, the history. Uh, I 
tried to uh, to read independent uh, books printed in underground about the the history it, it seemed very interesting for me so so it was not from the f- family circles but uh, from the uh, circumstances in fact in Wrocław in the late 80s you started out in 1999 as an assistant professor at the University of Wrocław where you had studied did you plan an academic career Yes, it was my dream to to be a professor and to teach, write books. Unfortunately, my life my life now looks quite different. Although with a lot of books that you've written. Yeah, but it was uh, a few years ago, not now. What uh, led you in um, the year, um, I guess it was 2000, to join this brand new Institute of National Remembrance? First of all, I was invited. Uh, to to take a first position in this institute, but um, why I decided to to uh, to join the institute during uh, my previous research uh, on doctoral thesis, for example, I found that there are many documents which are not available for historians, especially documents of former secret service, which were very important for me, and I could uh, get them only to the very limited extent. Sometimes the, there were situations, for example, that officer of um, uh, recent uh, special services showed me just a half of a page. It was forbidden for me to see what is on the other uh, other side. And, of course, I thought it was unfair because uh, these stories were very important not only for the historians but also for the people who lived in, in this uh, in this time. So it was a great opportunity to get an access uh, to many documents which were, were hidden not only during the communist era but uh, even during the 1990s. And um, so it was something new, new possibilities, for example, uh, you know, Polish universities in the 1990s were in fact in crisis. The base was in economy. There was a lack of money for for everything, including research, science, um, etc. So it was uh, a possibility also to create something new, uh, to start new projects. I I had a lot of ideas in my head, but it was impossible to introduce them uh, at the university because of lack of money or some other some other problems. So it was a great chance, uh, not only for me, I think for the whole generation of young historians. We probably should back up and explain to our listeners what exactly the Institute of National Remembrance is, what it's supposed to do. In one sentence, we are dealing with the past. Uh, But of course, uh, there are many meanings of this sentence. Um, Our institute have... uh, four or five uh, main fields of our activity. First uh, is um, prosecution of the crimes. We have a special prosecutor's branch, prosecutor's office in in our institute. We employ about 100 uh, prosecutors uh, and they are responsible to conduct investigation in the cases of crimes from the period of Second World War and uh, from the period of communist dictatorship. Uh, from 2007, uh, we are also re- responsible for illustration or vetting. It's also a legal procedure, uh, and our prosecutors verify statements of people who want to occupy some public position, if they were or not uh, secret collaborators or, or officers of the communist uh, special services. Uh, the largest uh, part of our institute is an archive. 
It's uh, archive uh, with about 90 kilometers of files, so it's um, the biggest archive in Poland. So that's about 60 miles, roughly. Yes, so, so it's, it's a really huge amount of, of documents, and uh, if we think that uh, none of them, or almost none of them, were seen, uh, even seen before the 2000s, it's, it's really impressive, and we still don't know what is in this ar- archive, in fact. And um, uh, the fourth uh, branch uh, is um, Public Education Office, which is responsible for scientific research and uh, for uh, publication and education. When you first started to work for the Institute, you were involved in the educational um, wing. How did you go about doing that? It was natural because uh, in, in our institute, education means not only education itself, but also the research. So I was, as a scientist, as a historian, involved in creating some uh, research programs, uh, etc. And I started to teach an education. It's, it was a new experience for me because, uh, of course, there is a kind of education in the university, how to teach students about the past. But now I'm responsible for, for many other forms of um, education. And I found how hard it is to, to teach about the past, especially about the past of dictatorship. How do you get young people interested? I think um, for them it's uh, something really interesting because it's a really different world. The, the change is so huge uh, during these 23 or 24 years that the life, um, the life in the communist era was so different, so they want to understand, for example, their parents or grandparents. Uh, the only problem is uh, to find a way how to tell the story to them, and we are trying to invent some new possibilities because, uh, let's say... Um, Regular teaching at school with manual and the teacher uh, it's not enough uh, to, 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 to have a real interest in, in, in a problem. We are trying to, uh, to create some projects uh, during uh, which uh, pupils are um, trying to explore the history of their own families or their uh, cities, um, etc. by trying to Uh, to see how this uh, big history of the 20th century impacted the life of of, um, very close uh, circles. And we are trying to find what is most important uh, for the contemporary Poles, what is most important for the society. Uh, We are trying to, to show some very important events or even whole movements, uh, for example, the forgotten history of Polish underground, armed underground after the Second World War, or history of solidarity. Looking from the perspective of the past years, it, it is also a forgotten, not enough described um, uh, fragment part of our history and why it is important for us. Because this part of our history can teach us about some values, for example, which we need even now. Uh, how important democracy is, how important human rights are, etc. Do you feel any special need to work on World War II now when the witnesses of that period are ever fewer and fewer in number? Yes, I think it's really necessary uh, from various points of, of view. For example, it is especially important for Poland because it is impossible to understand contemporary Poland 
without the knowledge about the Second World War, because uh, this war changed everything. Uh, we can say that the whole country was moved a few hundred kilometers to the west, for example, so the borders changed. Um, the national structure changed uh, completely. Uh, before the war, the, there were about 30% of minorities in, in Poland after the war, especially because of Holocaust, but not only. And because of it, uh, we have majority of 96% of Poles. So it's quite different, uh, different country. And uh, even if we want to understand uh, communist dictatorship, its roots are also during the Second World War. Not only its effects, but also in a period of the Soviet occupation uh, of Eastern Poland uh, in first years of, of the war. So I think it's, it's really important from, from uh, many points of view. You mentioned having uh, prosecutors within the institute. Are any of them working actively on World War II cases? Yes, and of course it is almost impossible to have uh, some court trials now, uh, but there are some possibilities. And for example, the United States wants to to send to Europe a, a group of uh, war criminals, but it is uh, still possible to conduct such uh, such investigation. And in some cases, especially from the first years of the war, the period of Soviet occupation, um, during those. Um, uh, investigations. There are uh, many. Uh, it is possible to find uh, many new documents, and there are still possible to collect testimonies of of witnesses, uh, which will be very important not only for for prosecutors but in the historians in future. So it's it's still possible to, and I think it still makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about this massive supply of records that you have. Um, some people have complained that the records kept by the secret police um, weren't always accurate. Um, how much can we depend on those records? I think uh, from the point of view of historian, these documents are sources like many others. We have to keep in mind that they need some critics. Uh, uh, we, it is impossible to, to, to believe in everything what is, what is written, but it, uh, those documents are very important. Uh, if we compare uh, them with many other types of documents created in the time of communist di dictatorship, are we can say in many uh, cases uh, they are much better, much deeper. Uh, if we want to understand the communist system as a whole, it is impossible without these documents, because Secret Service played a very, very important role, uh, one of the main pillars of the communist system. And, uh, for example, for the history of economy, for example, it's, it's, those documents are very, very important, because in the archives of the Communist Party or government from the Communist era, you have an official version that everything is good, the production is high and even better. And the real situation is kept in the archives of the secret secret service, all the problems, etc. But uh, also, if he, anyone wants to to write something about the opposition resistance to the system, uh, it is impossible to write without these documents because oppositionists didn't create any documents. Sometimes we have some memoirs, testimonies, etc. But uh, uh, we found. Uh, we are finding now in our archive so many new cases f completely forgotten examples of resistance 
um, that that we see that our image from the 1990s was simply untrue. And of course, each document should be analyzed like it's it's normal for historians. What about one case that has gotten a lot of publicity? It's been a while now. Uh, your institute supported the publication of a book about it. And that's the the question of Lech Wałęsa, leader of solidarity, president of, of Poland, Nobel Prize winner. He actually uh, visited Bloomington and gave a talk in 1995, I think it was. And this book says that he was a collaborator. Yes, and uh, it was uh, confronted with many other historians. And uh, I think now is a common opinion that uh, there was such episode in, in, in his life. But it only shows for me uh, how complicated uh, human life is. Uh, and I think um, uh, that uh, uh, we do not have uh, too many heroes without anything wrong in, in, their, in their life. Uh, so it's, it's a complicated case because the um, uh, majority of the documents was destroyed. And unfortunately, some of them, a few hundred of them, were just stolen from, 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 from archives of Secret Service in the 1990s when President Voenza was an active uh, president. So we do not have full picture full picture now but uh, of course it was a very hard discussion for 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 our institute because uh, it was one of the uh, points where politics were deeply involved in 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 our in our uh, activity uh, but uh, even in the newest film of Andrzej Wajda this episode is is described so now it's i think um, a common knowledge what do you think of the factors that make people either choose to collaborate or allow themselves to be pressured into collaboration? Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's a really broad problem. Uh, it's, and, of course, again, almost each case is, is, is different. For some people, it was just enough, for example, to get the money. It was enough to attract them to secret collaborate because they needed money and or some other goods, because uh, in communist system, maybe not, not money is the most important uh, good, but there are many, many others. Uh, for some people, it was um, a possibility to change their own situation. For example, in academic circles, uh, cooperation uh, with the secret, uh, secret uh, service was one of the best choices if you wanted to... Um, to have a career, possibility to visit the West, to take a part in important conferences, uh, etc. Et uh, of course, uh, in, in many cases, there wasn't blackmail. Secret Service knew something about the person uh, who were in their interest, and uh, there was a, a choice. Uh, will they use this knowledge, or uh, the person will collaborate, collaborate with uh, with 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 them and coming back to the cases of of uh, collaboration, everything was useful. Almost everything was useful uh, for 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 secret service. So from the point of view of secret collaborator, he said something not important, but from their point of view, if they were interested in uh, in uh, some person, it could be very 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 useful. Of course, there were. Very limited group were people who were born to be secret collaborated. We we know a few cases of this of this kind, of people who loved 
to collaborate and to wrote everything about people they, they knew. That there, there are some cases of secret collaborators who wrote every day a report. There was no request for, for such many reports from the officer, but uh, they loved it. So, so it's, again, something about the human nature that some of us uh, is ready. Uh, and, 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 of course, it depends on circumstances. And in the communist uh, regime, it was used. Uh, so, so we can search for, for many, many, many reasons uh, for being secret collaborators. And, of course, it depended on the period. In the uh, 1940s, sometimes it was a choice. We'll shut you or you will collaborate with us. Of course, not after 1956. Uh, but in the first period, sometimes it was a choice to die or to, to betray. People in the United States, I think, have heard a lot about um, the East German archives, the secret police archives. There have been movies made about uh, uh, collaboration, about husbands reporting on wives or wives reporting on husbands. How does the Polish situation compare to the German or, in, or to other East European ones? Uh, the main difference is that, that uh, those archives were available in Germany in the early 90s, 1990s. It was because of the citizens of East Germany. Uh, in January 1990, they started to occupy the buildings of Stasi, so Ministry of Public, the Ministry of Public uh, Security, so-called, uh, so-called Stasi. And it was them who uh, first secured the archives in many other countries, including Poland. A lot of uh, documents were destroyed, uh, not only in 1989, but also in 1990. So they secured archives, and uh, the second, they won an access, the right to the access. For example, majority of West German politicians were against uh, because they expected that in those archives there would be something wrong about them and uh, because they knew that Stasi was deeply interested in the situation in uh, West uh, Germany and famous case of Helmut Kohl from late 1990s confirmed this this fear but uh, in U- reunion tra- treaty it was um, guaranteed that there will be an access to these files and for all 90s Germany was the only state with the access to uh, this kind of uh, documents. So that's why the German example was the most popular uh, around mm, around the world. And um, our situation is a little bit different. Uh, first of all, you started 10 years later or more than 10 years later. And the second difference is, uh, as I said, uh, a big part uh, of our archives is destroyed. So it's not the same case because in East Germany almost everyone can ask about the fight and he will get something, at least a few documents. And in our situation, sometimes even the most uh, important uh, people from the opposition have nothing in, in our archives, not because uh, the Secret Service was not interested in, in their activities, but because the files were uh, were destroyed. Uh, so, in our situation, for example, interest of people from art, uh, filmmakers, uh, other artists, musicians especially, uh, it started just a few years ago, three, four years ago. And uh, we inspired, I would say, a, a few movies, for example, because we invited screenwriters um, to our archives to show some very uh, interesting cases, interesting not only 
because of the history, but some of these cases are telling about some universal problems, universal values, etc. So a few movies was created uh, in, in last years, but of course they are not so popular, like the Germans ones uh, from, from the 1990s. So they used the priority. How long do you expect the Institute to remain um, a vital part of the public conversation before becoming a repository of historical documents? Uh, it's hard to say because, uh, of course, it's a kind um, of institution for time of transition. It's not eternal. And, um, uh, for example, uh, this German institution, this, this Office for Preserving the Stasi Records, uh, if I remember well, was created for 10 years. Uh, German parliament told that it is enough to, to deal with the past and then it is possible to close the institution to, to, to give them, to move the archives to other institutions, etc. And every five years now is a, a dispute in, in German parliament. The last decision was to extend this activity to 2090, so 29 years after, after the erection. And I think um, maybe we can compare it with, with some standards from the Bible, 40 years <laughs> of, of, of journey from, from Egypt to, uh, to Israel, and, and maybe it will be enough. It's uh, hard to guess uh, how long. Uh, I think that the, the main um, border is uh, uh, such kind of uh, institution is necessary also because of the victims. So as long as there are still victims between us, uh, we should exist. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Łukasz Kaminski, the president of the Institute of National Remembrance in Poland. Dr. Kaminski, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. That was Owen Johnson speaking with Łukasz Kaminski. Our next guest is a member of Poland's diplomatic corps. Polish ambassador to the U.S. Richard Schnepf has been active in foreign affairs since 1991. Owen Johnson spoke with him on October 24th. Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Today, we will visit with an individual who plays an important role in the diplomatic world. He's the ambassador from Poland to the United States. Poland's ties with Indiana University go back at least to the early 1930s, when the famed pianist and one-time Polish Prime Minister Ignacy Paderewski played a concert in Bloomington. The university began teaching Polish during World War II, and then after a brief hiatus, started up again. In 1974, IU began working with the Polish government and the U.S. government on a project that resulted in the creation of the American Study Center at Warsaw University and the Polish Study Center at IU. So it's not surprising that the Polish ambassador should come to visit. The ambassador is Richard Schnepf, who took up his post in Washington in September 2012. Your ex Excellency, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Ambassador Schnepf, you were born in 1951, just six years after the end of World War II. What was it like growing up in a city that was almost totally destroyed during the war? Well, of course, uh, I don't remember so many things surrounding me as to rebuild the Warsaw uh, ambience. I have still 
keep a couple of photos. Me and my parents and my brother in front of the reconstructed buildings. But let me say that the prevailing feeling and memory is to have uh, many family members not present. So, so many photos surrounding me with uncles and aunts, grandfather, and many, many others who perished during the war. Post-war generation, so-called baby boom, when uh, people thought about the future with a lot of enthusiasm and many plans, but with a very difficult conditions that were they were growing up. You entered Warsaw University in 1969 or 1970 to study history. Why did Correct. you choose history? Well, there were several personal reasons. As usually at that age, friends joining the history department was one of the reasons, of course. But uh, history was something surrounding me from the very beginning. I felt like to know better my past, my country's past, was important to me. And uh, with the time, I became fascinated by the history, thanks to the great professors that we had, those professors that uh, are not present anymore in the academic surrounding, those who were brought in the pre-war times with the old-fashioned style of teaching the students and the respect that we had to them. It was a great time, great education, and a great lesson of patriotism. How do you explain um, that Poland was different in this respect from other neighbors under communist rule? In other countries, the pre-war faculty was forced to leave, but that didn't happen in Poland. Why? The spirit of liberty was always present in the Polish society. If you look into our history, and I know that it is, you are very familiar with that, you'll find out that Polish history is full of the events where the patriotism and the national issues were very alive. So uh, even under the communism, the communist leaders like Gomułka were aware that with the Polish society, you have to treat differently. Poland was one of the few countries where the private small properties was maintained against the general communist rule and the Soviet-style agriculture, for example. Also, some liberty and personal freedom had to be guaranteed or at least respected unofficially to guarantee that the certain cooperation of the Polish elite, which was destroyed after the war, but still the leftist uh, uh, intellectuals needed to to have some freedom of expression, liberty to create a new literature 
and music and and uh, movie. You did choose, however, not to emphasize Polish history in your studies, but Latin American history. Why? Well, it's a it's it's a tricky question, but I remember very well that my professor Tadeusz Łebkowski, who was a a founder of the Latin American school in Poland, taught us that if we cannot deal honestly and frankly with our own history, let's study other cases and compare them with our faith, our history, using the pretext of literary rule. For example, we published in 82 the book on military involvement in Latin American countries. To the great extent, it, it reminded us the same rules, the same uh, schemes, how the military intervened in the civil uh, life and civil rules. So it was a great lesson also to, uh, to understand that we have to respect other cultures and to eliminate to some extent Eurocentrism, which was very popular in the European teaching. There are other continents, other nations, other cultures, and studying it and presenting it to the Polish public was very important in those years in the 70s. It must be interesting to you now that Venezuela, the country that you wrote your dissertation about, has had a government in recent years um, that is very much like the regimes in Eastern Europe during the Cold War? Well, we hope it comes to its end with the death of Hugo Chavez. And of course, I learned uh, painfully those changes made after the coup d'etat made by Hugo Chavez a couple of years ago. I studied and I uh, made a research on those years where the students revolution was built up, so-called Generation 28, and the such leaders like Romulo Betancourt, Rafael Caldera, uh, and others were created on the wave of protest against the dictatorship of Juan Vicente Gomez. So my dissertation was dedicated to the democracy and the popular movement. I was very sorry to learn that all these efforts went and vanished and, and it ended up such as it did. Although I still have a great hope, I love this country, that the future of Venezuela with its riches and the great people they have is still bright. You started your teaching career in the Department of Iberian Studies at at Warsaw University, and almost immediately you were swept up in political opposition, what came to be known as the Solidarity Movement. It's For Americans, it probably seems strange that the direct politics would take place right in the university. How do you explain that? Well, uh, I would not agree. You have your own experience with university involved in, in politics in the 60s the student movements and the, the protests in those years. For us, it was a natural uh, choice. The young intellectuals, and particularly in the, in the uh, 
studies like history, philosophy, sociology, they were more reluctant to accept the uh, grip of the central power and total control of the government over the society. We could, we could not uh, study freely the, our own history. Uh, there was no access to the prohibited books. There were internal discussions, although, and it's easy to discover that several members of history department faculty or even the students like Adam Michnik, Jacek Kuroń, were history department students. And exactly they took the, the flame to promote the new ideas among the students. I perfectly remember March 8, 1968. I was still a student of a secondary school at that time, but living close to the university, I just uh, got involved in the, in, the, in the first clash between the students and the police on that day, just incidentally, but it changed my life forever. I felt like uh, emotionally uh, linked to those students, older colleagues who were beaten up in the yard of the university. And then I was like uh, 16 years old, and I, and I, and I, this was my fate as well. I got arrested there. I had the troubles. They want to fire me from my school, uh, and all began that way. That later, there was no other choice just to work with the underground opposition and uh, to, to construct the solidarity structure within the university. So I got involved. It was a process, but but in 1980. I immediately joined the the, the Solidarity re- Leaders organizing in my department the group which supported Lech Wałęsa and others. Did you worry um, both in, well, I guess you've talked about 1968 already, but after December 13, 1981, did you worry about your future in the university? This was, for our listeners, the date of the Declaration of Martial Law and the imprisonment of many Solidarity activists. It was a terrible day. I remember it perfectly. Very cold streets in snow. I remember my mother woke me up and said, look, there is no TV, no radio, no telephone. And all of a sudden we saw General Jaruzelski speaking to the nation and informing us that the whole world has changed for us. Uh, it looked like our future was ended. Curiously, before, under the Solidarity Festival, as we called it, I applied for the scholarship on the exchange program to visit Bloomington, and I was on the short list. When the martial law came, I said to myself, okay, just forget about it. It's finished. To my surprise, some four months later, in April, 82, we were informed that a special envoy came to Warsaw 
interviewed us personally, one by one, to check whether we are real scholars. So he asked me, what, I, what is my, my program for research? And uh, he left and nothing happened. So we still thought that the visit in Bloomington is not real. Just close to the vacation in summer, we were informed that still there is a possibility and probably we will get the passports. And in, in the end of August 1982, I arrived to Bloomington. What are your memories of that year in Bloomington? Wonderful. I found here in Bloomington free scholars, free discussion, and easy access to all sources that we needed so much and we missed so much in Poland. I discovered like a, another part of our history. It's not that I didn't know about it, but I have never read the books that were so difficult to get in Poland. I found it just on a shelf in a library in Bloomington. We had uh, almost every week a discussion on Poland, on Central European issues, simply because it became a, a, center, a center of interest of many Americans. Finally, I was offered to give a course, to, to, to give a seminar on Central European contemporary history, and I was very happy to, to ch teach it with, with all the uh, precautions, because uh, we knew that our consulate general in Chicago is watching us all the time. So we had from time to time the visits from Chicago with the guys asking what we were doing exactly. I enjoyed that time on intellectually, but also on a private basis. We were met with a very friendly ambience. People knew what happened to Poland, and they took a special care of us. So it's good to study here in Bloomington. It means something. It was a great lesson of, of democracy, freedom, and also friendship. How would you compare the attitudes of the or the approach of students in the United States with the students that you'd had in Poland? Were there different ways of approaching um, history courses? Well, I, I, um, I've been teaching a very specific uh, subject, which was quite distant to, to many students. There was a lot of curiosity among the students asking me in, a, in any con possible conversation, how about Poland? Uh, the general knowledge is not very big. But those people who attended the seminar were very qualified. I was surprised by the high level. It was a postgraduate uh, seminar, people were with a. What brought them to the seminar was an uh, uh, authentic interest, and uh, on that stage you choose really what you really like, because you fulfill some programs. Uh, many of them they knew some Polish, or other uh, Central European languages, and. Uh, 
I enjoyed uh, a high-level discussion and great personal involvement. We became friends. I was not that older than they were. Uh, so uh, it was a, a, a friendly company and at the same time a great uh, a place for a free discussion or whatever we, 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 we wanted to talk. Just uh, the everyday life and the personal experience, they were very uh, insisting in knowing the details of uh, everyday citizens' life in Warsaw or any place in Poland. Uh, I was a, a good and fresh source of information, of course. Jumping ahead a little bit and going through the last days of, of communist rule, um, in 1991 you joined the Foreign Service. What made you decide to give up your academic career and go into the diplomatic service? Actually, I didn't give up immediately. I've been trying to to maintain the, the, the links uh, until, until the last moment. I could not afford having my, my official duties and at the same time obligations to be on time in classes. But, uh, of course, uh, my first assignment was an ambassador in, in Uruguay and Paraguay, so a distant countries that I could not uh, think even about continuing my my academic uh, obligations. But there are several reasons. First, we all believe that it was necessary to change the face of Polish diplomacy. The academic circles seemed to be natural choice. We were not prepared formally. We learned on, on our way to some extent the diplomatic protocol and the rules. But we were prepared as people who knew the world, who were closer to the international affairs, particularly those who were dealing with uh, not domestic history, but uh, other countries' uh, past. And uh, knowing languages was also as an asset. So when my, a friend of mine became a director of uh, America's department at the ministry, he made a phone call and said, literally, I have a proposal you cannot reject. Uh, of course, I could uh, say <laughs> no, but I always had a spirit of challenge. And I may say that it still exists. So to change your life from time to time and to take a new task is good. It refreshes you on all grounds, intellectually, spiritually, but also it gives you more power to go uh, farther. So I said yes without knowing actually what was uh, expecting me. Uh, the beginning was very difficult. Fortunately, ambassador of Poland, or practically from any country in Uruguay, is not a very public person. So I could always keep a part of my life private, which is very important. I would say that psychologically, this is, is this is most important thing to. Uh, to maintain the integrity of your personal life 
and at the same time fulfill the official duties. When you returned to Warsaw, one of your posts under Prime Minister Jerzy Buzek was as um, director of protocol. Um, given the fact that you'd only been in the diplomatic service for less than a decade, that must have been uh, uh, an experience where you had to learn fast. Well, actually, my role was to organize the foreign visits of the prime minister abroad and to receive or organize the visits, coming visits from abroad. Needless to say that on that level, this was the highest level people visiting Poland or the prime minister visit to other prime minister or presidents. So it was it was difficult, challenging. I discovered a fascinating world of the uh, organization of big events, which later on helped me a lot to to deal with uh, even more challenging proposals. But I was uh, using all my senses and also the historical experience, how to read the signs and to make it better. We just have a couple of minutes left, so I want to ask you simply, um, uh, you came to the United States as ambassador in September 2012. What is your hardest task as ambassador in the United States? There, There is no one, just one, I would say, but of course to maintain the traditional interest and links between the United States and Poland would be a great achievement. And uh, a part of my job is to explain where the United States is right now and when the country goes, that the United States is having a global policy. And, uh, and we have to understand that because the global security is also our security. But it would be good to have more America, more United States in Poland particularly in the security issues. This is the first time that the American vice president visited any embassy, any residence at all. So we're very proud of it, and it meant a lot to us. It just confirmed that there's a very special link, which is not just, uh, uh, these are not last years, but uh, it's a long-lasting tradition of the presence of Polish people here in the United States and the um, special uh, sentiments that Polish people uh, have to the, to the American people. Let me mention only that I, a couple of weeks ago I visited a small place in Pennsylvania which is called Wilkiebury, uh, where the Polish population is uh, occupies more or less 25% of the total population of the Lucerne County. And uh, I discovered not those who came in the 80s, but those who came in the mid-19th century as miners. And in working there, and I met people who are the fourth or third generation in the Americans of Polish origin, who still remember that they know a couple of Polish words, they keep the Polish tradition, and they ask me to do all possible 
to keep our alliance and friendship strong. So I will do. It's an excellent way to come to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Richard Schneff, Ambassador of the Republic of Poland to the United States. Ambassador Schneff, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.